Hey, everybody, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Today, we're going to be covering verses 12 to 26. And this is the place in Scripture where Jesus meets with his disciples. They sit down for what we would call the Last Supper. Technically, it was a Passover meal. We talked a little bit about that last week. We're going to fill in a little bit more in terms of like historical details today. But before we get into any of that, I want to start with a question that we're going to be exploring today that that I think is a thread that we can pull through this whole story. Here's the question. How do you know if your faith is authentic? Because, of course, when you think about the Last Supper, you're thinking about Jesus and his 12 disciples. And by the way, a lot of commentators think that it was more than just those guys there. There's some reasons for that. There were some others there as well, but Jesus is really engaging with his 12 disciples, but one of them is going to betray him. Of course, if you know the story, you know who I'm talking about. It's Judas. He's famous for his great betrayal, and we're going to see that you know that he gets identified here uh, in, in the text for today, but this is why I'm asking the question, how do you know if your faith is authentic? Because as, as we're going to see in the story when Jesus says that one of you is going to betray me, the text is going to tell us that they all asked, is it me? It wasn't just Judas that asked, is it me? Every single one of them, apparently from, from the passage, every single one of them was, I don't know, like insecure. So another way to say that is every one of them doubted if they, if they could do something like that, if they could, or wondered, maybe not doubted, every single one of them wondered if they could betray Jesus. And so, again, how do you know if your faith is authentic? How do you know if, if your faith is going to go the distance? How do you know if, if you could be a Judas or not? I mean, think about the, the link between Judas and Peter. Okay, both of these guys followed Jesus for three years. Both of these guys claimed to believe in him. Both of these guys were at the Last Supper. Both of these guys ate the bread and drank the cup like we're going to see in today's text. Both of these guys made terrible mistakes, obviously. I mean, Peter himself betrayed Jesus. Peter, Peter himself is going to, as we're going to learn later on in Mark chapter 14, Peter himself is going to deny Jesus, is going to betray Jesus. Just like Judas betrays Jesus. The difference is, one of them was a fake, Judas. We know how his story ended. One of them, Peter, in spite of his ups and downs, in spite of his mistakes, Peter, it turns out, is going to go the distance. But again, at this point of the story in Mark chapter 14 in our text today, Peter didn't know if he was going to be a Judas. Thomas didn't know. None of them knew. None of them really knew if their faith was authentic. And maybe some of you are listening today, and that question is sort of a triggering question, because maybe you've wondered the same thing. You know, in years of ministry, I've met with a lot of people who've questioned their faith. Am I a true believer? Am I, am I genuinely a follower of Jesus? You know, some of you maybe have a really guilty conscience about it, or maybe you've done some things that you're ashamed of. And so... We're going to answer that question today. How do you know if your faith is authentic? I'm going to come back and give you two very practical questions that you can ask and answer in order to really hopefully come to a conclusion on that question for today. How do you know if your faith is authentic? Now, Jesus himself predicted 
that there would be some who say that they're followers of Jesus, but yet they're not genuine followers of Jesus. He says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we know there is such a thing as a false believer. And we'll see the prime example of one of those false believers in our text for today. So let's get to it. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12, there's going to be some really cool insights and nuggets along the way as, we, as we're heading toward answering our, our personal question for the day. First to the text, verse 12, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus's disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? Now, this is a Thursday. Literally, it's the Thursday before Good Friday. So one day later, Jesus is going to be hanging on the cross. We talked a little bit about the Passover meal last week. Uh, but suffice it to say that the disciples had no clue that Jesus was about to redefine history and theology and everything with this meal. We'll, we'll explain that here in a second. They had no idea that we would be doing a podcast on this moment 2,000 years later, that churches would celebrate this whenever they celebrate communion. Whenever Christian churches celebrate communion, it's about this Passover meal that gets all this this, it's imbued with all this new meaning and understanding. Jesus is going to do all of this. But for now, they're just saying to Jesus, hey, the Passover meal is coming up. Where should we prepare for it? And so verse 13, Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. He says, as you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? And he will take you upstairs to a large room that's already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. So verse 16 says the two disciples went into the city. They found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. Now, this is strange. It almost sounds like a CIA mission. It's like very cryptic. It's very mysterious. We don't know if this is like something that Jesus just knows is going to happen, like almost like a prophecy that he knew there'd be a guy, he knew there'd be a place, or we don't know if maybe Jesus had already sort of prearranged for this, and now he's just sending his disciples out. The text doesn't tell us. It keeps it pretty mysterious. But I want you to just notice the simple obedience. The disciples were like, all right, whatever, we're going to go. And they, they went and everything happened just like Jesus said. And so they prepared the Passover meal. Now, a couple other notes. I want to just, I want to bring in some nuggets here. So interesting to me as I've studied this passage. First of all, a male water carrier, the Pillar of the New Testament commentary says, would have caught their eye because carrying water was normally the labor of women or slaves. And so it actually would have been a little strange that a male water carrier would be in the picture. So that was one thing is probably a little bit easy to spot. You know, uh, Jerusalem at this time would have been mobbed with people. There would be a ton of people in Jerusalem uh, around the Passover celebration because it was a big deal for the Jewish people. And so spotting a water carrier who was a dude would have been a little bit easier than just finding some random woman. Now, here's the other really interesting nugget. This is so cool. Pillar Com New Testament commentary says this as well. So I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but this, this 
explanation of this guest room, this large room, this upstairs room, sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like the meeting place that we read about in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, the upper room in Acts 1, 13. It could be that it's the same place. It could be the place where Jesus had his last supper is the same place where the disciples are gathering not long after that in Acts chapter 1, the upper room, which could also be the same place we read about in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. If you remember the story where Peter escapes from prison and he goes to, to the home of Mary, the son of John Mark, where, where many were gathered for prayer. I don't know if you remember that story. Go read it in, in Acts 12, 12. But here's my point. If, if the upper room in Mark 14 is the same upper room that we read about in Acts 1, and it's the same one that we read about in Acts 12, well, Acts 12 tells us whose house this was. And get this, it's the house of the mother of John Mark, otherwise known as Mark, the author of the gospel. So think about this. If it Now, again, this is just speculation, but this is so cool to think about. If the house in Mark 14 is Mary, the mother of John Mark, it's Mary's house, then it's very possible that the, that the young man carrying the pitcher of water was Mark himself. Isn't that cool? That it, it's possible that Mark is the guy in Mark 14 who's carrying the water, who's asked by the two disciples, hey, can we have a room for the Passover meal? How cool is that? Anyway, now I want to jump down. I'm going to skip a little section here. You'll see why in a second. I'm going to jump down to the meal itself. Okay, so Jesus is telling his disciples, you know, go, go into this place and you're going to find this room and that's where we're going to have our Passover meal. And then we're going to jump to verse 22 where they have this Passover meal. Now, remember, we talked last time about what this meal was about. It was all about the Exodus. It was, it was all connected to this really significant moment in Israel's history where God delivered the Israelites through the help of Moses. God delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt toward the promised land. This whole Passover meal was about that night, right? Where, where they all put a lamb's blood above their doorposts and the and the angel of the lord came and took the and and uh the firstborn of of the israelites were spared but the firstborn of the egyptians were not spared again if you don't know that story maybe go back and read that story in the old testament but that's what the whole passover meal celebrated so at the time of jesus that's what everyone had on their mind they, they were thinking about the Exodus. They were thinking about God's deliverance of his people from slavery. And Jesus is going to redefine the whole thing. And I want you to pay attention to this as we read these verses, starting with verse 22, the meal itself. Now, there were four cups of wine that were traditionally consumed during the Passover meal, and each one was important. Each one was part of the story. So let me walk you through some of those, all four of those cups, and then I'm going to read the passage sort of in line chronologically with probably what we're reading here when we're reading about the Last Supper and 
and these four different cups that would have been consumed. Now, again, Mark doesn't list out the four cups for us, so we're going to have to sort of read between the lines here, and that's what I want to do for you. The first cup was called the Kadosh cup, or the cup of sanctification, and this was just where they kind of were kicking off the holiday. So this is sanctifying the holiday. Sanctifying is another word for like setting it apart as special and holy. Holiday literally means holy day, sanctified day. So the leader of the Seder meal, the Passover meal, who was usually the head of the household, in this case, it would have been Jesus. He recites a blessing over the wine and he marks the beginning of the festive meal and, and they drink the first cup together. Okay, so, so cup number one, the cup of sanctification. Cup number two is called the cup of plagues. Um, and so... This is where after that after they would do this initial ritual hand washing they would they would break the the middle matzah the bread um, they would fill the second cup but before they would drink the cup the participants would would sing about the ten plagues that afflicted the Egyptians during the time of Moses in some traditions they would actually dip their finger into the wine and remove a drop for each plague. And that would sort of express the symbolic diminishing of joy due to the suffering of the Egyptians. Okay, so that was called the cup of plagues. Now, again, Mark doesn't talk about these first two cups. He doesn't talk about the cup of sanctification. He doesn't talk about the cup of plagues. But certainly, Jesus and the disciples would have followed this tradition because this was the Passover meal. But this is where we're going to read verse 22 now because this is where I think that this is the third cup that we read about in Mark 14, verse 22. So now that you know about the first two cups, the cup of sanctification, the cup of plagues, let's pick up on the text. Here's what it says. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it, and then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take it for this is my body. Now, many theologians would say, okay, so this is right before they drink the third cup. They're taking this ceremonial bread called, in this case, called the matzo. This was the unleavened bread of the Passover meal, and it symbolized haste. That's why it was unleavened. They didn't have time to leaven the bread and let it rise. Remember, if you remember back to the story, they had to hurry up and get out of Dodge, right? So the, the matzo, this unleavened bread, symbolized haste and humility, submission to God. It symbolized redemption. It, it symbolized the Israelites' liberation from slavery in Egypt. All of these things, this is what it symbolized. And the matzo was referred to, get this, really interesting, by Jewish people, it would have been referred to as the bread of affliction. Because it was all about the hardships endured by the Israelites during their enslavement in Egypt. The matzo was the bread of affliction. And Jesus is saying, this is my body. Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of affliction. You know, if, if Jesus followed the normal Passover rite, then he would, have, he would have broken this bread, he would have distributed the wine, and then he would have said, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that prayer, but that's what they would have normally prayed. But Jesus adds this really interesting piece of information. He says, take it, for this is my body. 
Jesus is giving it new meaning. Jesus is breaking from the tradition and he's following the tradition, but then he's adding this other piece of information. This bread of affliction is me. I'm the bread of affliction. Jesus is the matzo. Now, there was a second kind of ceremonial bread that I want to mention for you right now. The Jewish people knew about the matzo, and they would celebrate with this once a year with the Passover meal. But the other kind of bread you would have found in the temple, and this was called the showbread, or the bread of the presence. And this was a sacred offering that would be presented before God every Sabbath. So the showbread was a weekly thing that you would celebrate in the temple. The old loaves, the loaves from the week before would be eaten by the priests, and then the new showbread would be laid out there. Leviticus 24, 8 says this, it is the ongoing expression of the eternal covenant. So the showbread was about the presence of God. So the matzo was about the affliction. It was a bread of affliction. The showbread was the bread of the presence. And essentially, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's fulfilling both of these things. He's giving them this bread, the matzo, but he's not just fulfilling the bread of affliction. He's fulfilling the bread of the presence. He's saying, this is my body. And the Greek word in the text here is not the word sarx, which is the word for flesh. It's actually the word soma, which is the word for being. Jesus isn't saying, this is my physical body. Jesus is saying, this is my whole being. This is my abiding presence. And isn't that exactly what this means to us today when we take communion? We're celebrating not just the affliction of Jesus, we're celebrating the abiding, ongoing presence of Jesus in our lives. So he breaks the matzo, he distributes it to the disciples, and then it says in verse 23, he took the cup of wine. And this is most likely the third cup. He took the cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. This is called the cup of redemption, the third cup. And you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is saying, this is is no longer about the, the lamb who was sacrificed on that fateful night, right? And then you would take the blood from the lamb and and paint it over your doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over the Israelite homes, but would would take the firstborn from the Egyptians. Jesus is saying, this isn't about that anymore. That was, only, that was only part of the story. This is the rest of the story. This is what Jesus is saying. This is the rest of the story. He's saying, this is my blood. This isn't just some other lamb's blood. This is my blood. And this blood confirms the covenant between God and his people, and it's poured out as a sacrifice for many. Now remember, this is Thursday. The Passover meal was on a Thursday. The very next day, Jesus would be hanging on the cross. His blood would be spilled on the cross for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. And then verse 25 finishes Jesus' statement here. He says, I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it anew in the kingdom 
of God. And many commentators think that verse 25 now is referring to the fourth cup. And the fourth cup is called the cup of acceptance. This was the cup that was consumed after the meal, and it signifies the acceptance of God's covenant with the Jewish people and the hope for the complete restoration of Jerusalem. Now remember, this is what the Jewish people would have been thinking about. This is what they had on their mind, was God's covenant with the people of Israel, God's covenant that was being played out all through the Old Testament, God's covenant that just continued to be kept over and over and over because of God's gracious intervention. And Jesus is drinking this final cup, and he's saying, I'm not going to drink wine again until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And of course, we know that that's true. This was Jesus' last supper with his disciples. This is the final Passover meal shared between Jesus and his followers, where Jesus redefines the most meaningful story in Jewish history in light of his mission on earth. Jesus is the fulfillment. It wasn't about slavery in Egypt. It turns out it was about slavery to sin. It wasn't about ceremonial bread. It was about the ultimate bread, Jesus himself, the body of Christ, the presence of Jesus himself. It wasn't about a lamb's blood. It was about Jesus's blood. And all of this would play out in real time the very next day. And here's what I want you to notice. Maybe you didn't Maybe you've never really noticed this before. Maybe you haven't picked up on this in the story before. But notice what it says that when Jesus took the bread and he took the cup and he gave it to them, it says in that text, they all drank from it. That means Peter drank from it. Thomas drank from it. Judas drank from it. Every single one of those disciples drank that cup of wine. Every single one of those disciples was indicating that they were a follower of Jesus, that they were all in. But yet we know that they weren't all in, were they? We know that one of them was a fake. We know that one of them was a liar. So let's go back now and finish what we left out, right? So we left out Mark chapter 14, verses 17 to 21 the paragraph right before everything we just read about the bread and the wine. Look at what Mark tells us there. It says, In the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And as they were sitting at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. And it says, Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, Am I the one? And he replied, It is one of you twelve who is eating from this bowl with me, for the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. And here's what I want to point you to in this text for today. And this is where my question for the day comes from. Are you a true believer? How do you know if your faith is authentic? Have you ever noticed that it says, each one asked in turn, am I the one? Every single one of the disciples around that table today wondered 
if their faith was authentic, each one of them had some sort of doubt. They wondered if they were going to go the distance. Now, only one of them would betray Jesus. Well, actually, more than one of them. In fact, the Bible says that each one of these guys would end up bailing on Jesus. Every one of them scattered in the in the verses ahead in the next few weeks. Just pay attention to what all of these disciples did. Every one of these disciples was capable of betraying Jesus and ditching Jesus and fleeing from him, leaving him at his greatest time of need. But one of them would do the ultimate betrayal. One of them would betray Jesus and prove that he was a fraud all along. Of course, that's Judas. Judas was a fake. We know how his story ended. But Peter, Peter was a sinner. Peter also betrayed Jesus. Peter, we're going to find out later, Peter denies him three times before the rooster crows. Peter felt terrible about it. But Peter, we know his story. He went on to die for his faith. So the question for us today is, wait, am I the one? How can I know if my faith will go the distance? I mean, the truth is, Every one of us is a mixed bag. Every one of us has has this battle going on within us. I just want you to know that every single one of us does. The Bible says that's the truth. The Bible says that we have a new nature when we come to faith in Jesus, but we still have this old nature that's at war with our new nature. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5. He even refers to it in Romans chapter 7. Read those verses, those chapters, if you want to learn more about that. So the question then is, how do we properly evaluate the state of our faith? How do we know if we're a Peter or a Judas? You know, some of you, maybe you've asked that very question. You've doubted your salvation. You've wondered if it's, if it's authentic. You've wondered if your faith will go the distance. I remember, you know, in youth group, growing up in youth group, I remember altar calls every Wednesday night at youth group. And I remember all these kids, so many kids, we always knew who was going to go up. These kids who would live like hell during the week, but then would go and repent and go up on the altar call and and pray and kind of recommit their life to Christ. And that would happen multiple times a year. You know, I know in retrospect now, 30 years later, some of those kids who seemed so genuine, some of those kids are godless now. Some of those kids have turned their back on Jesus. Now, their stories aren't necessarily over yet. We don't really know if they're going to end like Judas because everyone can still turn back to Jesus. Everyone, Jesus always gives us second and third and fourth chances. But I'm just saying that some of those kids didn't have genuine faith is my guess, and some of them did. And so how do we know which one we are? And to answer that, I want to just, I want to just give you two simple questions that you need to answer in order to know if your faith is authentic. It's really simple and really a good way to understand these questions is just to go check out our pursuit series at pursuegod.org forward slash go. That's where we talk about what it really means to be a follower of Jesus, a genuine follower of Jesus. Here are the two questions that you need to ask yourself. Number one, have you trusted Jesus for salvation? You know that your salvation is not dependent on what you've done. Think about the verse that I opened with in today's episode from Matthew 7, where Jesus said, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? You notice their question? Their question is about what they've done. 
Some of those people, and maybe some of you today listening, think that your salvation, that your faith, is dependent on what you've done. It's dependent on your ability to keep the rules, to keep your nose clean, to be a good person. And here's what I want you to know. And it's really what this whole story today is about. It's what this whole text is about. Your salvation is not dependent on your work. It's dependent on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's what the Last Supper was all about. It's about his body. It's about his blood. It's about his work, not yours. So here's the question. Have you trusted Jesus for salvation? Yes or no? You've either trusted Jesus, you've either pinned all of your hope on the finished work of Jesus on the cross, or you haven't. You're trying to gain his approval by your own works. If you haven't trusted Jesus for salvation, then you're not even ready to move on to the next question. That's the first thing. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast about it. Now, for those of you who answered yes to that first question, there's probably one more question that you need to ask, and here it is. Are you honoring God with your life? Now notice, I I didn't say, are you perfect? Are you sinless? Because we won't be. We're all a mixed bag. We'll all continue to be a mixed bag. I mean, think about it. Both Judas and Peter made mistakes. Not just Judas, Peter did as well. The difference is that Peter ended up confessing his mistakes. Peter grieved his mistakes. And Peter went on to die for his faith. Peter went on to live a life that honored God. Not a perfect life. He still made mistakes for sure. And you will and I will. We all will. But the question is, am I honoring God with my life? Because the truth is that genuine faith Genuine faith, when you really trust Jesus for salvation and have a relationship with him, genuine faith will always eventually result in fruit. That's what John said in 1 John 2, verse 3. We can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. This is written by John at the end of his life. John, the beloved disciple, who is at that table with Jesus that day. John learned after a lifetime of following Jesus that if you truly have trusted Jesus for salvation, then it will show in the life that you live. So if you want faith that will go the distance, faith that is authentic, trust Jesus for salvation, and then by the power of his Holy Spirit living in you, honor God with your decisions every day as you go through the inevitable ups and downs of life.